John chapter 11, we're going to read the whole chapter. This is on page 1076, if you're using our church Bibles. Brothers and sisters, this is what Holy Scripture says. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. The disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had been, had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. 
When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God. To bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, our sermon today is taken from the text that I just read, John chapter 11. Uh, But in the original manuscript of John's gospel, there were no uh, chapter divisions. So To set up the context of where Jesus is and and why he's there, to understand this chapter, we need to go back one to chapter 10, verse 24. This kind of sets things going. 1024, the Jews who were gathered around him, they were gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you. But you do not believe the works I do in my father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. 
I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one, one in purpose, one in action. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the father. For, for which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And then we read in verse 39 that although they wanted to kill Jesus, he escaped their grasp. And then verse 40, then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. And that takes us back to where we were in chapter 1, to an area called Batanea. It's up north. It's in Galilee. It's across the Jordan River. So there they are, Jesus' disciples. They're in Batanea. But before long, Mary and Martha, Jesus' close friends from the village of Bethany, and Bethany is in the south. It's in Judea. It's two miles from Jerusalem. Before long, Mary and Martha, they send word to Jesus that their brother and Jesus' dear friend, Lazarus, is very sick. And it's important that we keep the geography of everything that's going on here in mind as essential. There's actually, there's a distance of 150 kilometers between these two areas. So that's a good three and a half, four days walk. So look at verse one. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And here we just have a, I think it's just a very interesting snapshot, a personal snapshot of Jesus' life. Uh, these, are, these are Jesus' friends. Not his disciples, they're his friends. Lazarus, Mary, Martha, so two sisters and a brother. And they are a wealthy family. Uh, this is the same Mary we read of in chapter 12, verse 3, who pours the equivalent of about $35,000 worth of perfume on Jesus' feet and then wipes it with her hair. They also have their own family tomb. It's cut out of rock, which is a luxury only the very wealthy could afford. Now, we don't know a whole lot about the man Lazarus himself, but we do know that he was someone for whom Jesus really, truly cared. Uh, look at verse 3. The sister sent word saying, Lord, the one you love is sick. And just as an aside, do you recall how uh, John the Apostle describes himself in this book? We haven't actually got there yet. He hasn't done it yet. But he famously starts doing this soon. Do you remember what he says, how he calls, what he calls himself? Yeah, right? He refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. The one whom Jesus loved. That's beautiful. And what does the Apostle Paul say about Jesus in Galatians 2.20? He loved me and gave himself for me. Christian, know this. You are loved by jesus he loves you you're, you're personally loved by jesus I, we need we need to dwell on that with with wonder and praise 
One commentator writes, those who draw really close to Jesus think of themselves first and foremost as those loved by him rather than those who profess their love for him. I am loved by Jesus Christ. The thing is, Jesus has just received this news about his sick friend and he's 150 clicks away. It's a four-day journey, at least a four-day journey for them. It would take me probably three weeks to walk that. But Jesus and his disciples, they're not galloping around Palestine on Arabian chargers, right? They, every, wherever they go, they walk. Verse 4, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it ends in resurrection. But the event's purpose, it's true, an ultimate end isn't even Lazarus's resurrection. Look at the second part of verse 4. This is what this is all about. 4b. No, it's for God's glory. So that God's son may be glorified through it. That's why this is happening. That means the raising of Lazarus is all about the glory of God through the glorification of his eternal son, Jesus. That's God's sovereign purpose in all of this. That's why Lazarus falls ill. That's why Lazarus eventually dies. It's for God's glory. So that God's son might be glorified through it. But Pastor John, what about poor Lazarus and the anguish this put his family through? No, what comes first is God's glory. God's glory always takes precedence, both in Lazarus's life and in our own. Implications abound, beloved, but we'll come to that in a moment. Verse 4, when Jesus, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Okay, so we stop right there. He loves this family. And if we were reading John's gospel from the beginning, from chapter 1, and we're reading this account now, and we're reading it for the first time, what would we just naturally expect to happen in these next verses? Wouldn't we expect something to the effect of, you know, the next verse says, and so Jesus heard the one you love is sick, so he dropped everything and and bustled like crazy off to to Bethany to, to heal his friend Lazarus. That would make sense. Or even perhaps it would be, he could say to the messenger, look, I love Lazarus. I'm going to heal him from afar. Here, he's healed right now. Go back. You'll, you'll notice at this very hour, um, he's been healed. You know, he did that with the official son back in, uh, in chapter 4. But instead, with this man he loves, we read this, verse 6. So, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And that so in the Greek could also be rendered therefore. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Why in the world would Jesus do that? He's the one person on the planet who could really do something for Lazarus. And everybody knows it. Uh, The people standing around the grave in verse 37, they say the same thing. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? What's going on? So if you look in your bulletin, our first point, Lazarus is sick, yet Jesus delays in order that God may be glorified. 
In this case, God is glorified through Lazarus's resurrection, but not always. Verse 7, and then he said to his disciples, after a two-day delay, let us go back to Judea. And it's probably on this day that Lazarus dies. And now Jesus is proposing a four-day walk for his disciples, journeying south. They're going back to Judea. Verse 8, but Rabbi, they said a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. And yet you are going back? They're thinking, like, Lord, maybe we ought to uh, let things simmer down a bit, let things blow over. And before we actually venture right back into the lion's den, you were almost killed in Judea because the Jews there thought you were claiming to be God. All right, so do you remember, Jesus, how you said, I and the Father are one? Yeah, um, you, you might love this family a whole lot, but there's no point getting killed over this. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. And I I think these verses are metaphorically insisting that as long as Jesus performs his Father's will, then he's safe. Uh, He has nothing to fear from a lynch mob. Jesus is saying, I have to go back to Judea because it's my Father's will. And if I'm obeying my Father's will, then I'm walking in the light. If I were not to go back to Judea and not obey my father's will, then I would stumble because I would be walking in a kind of moral darkness. I think that's what he's saying. And then as further explanation as to why he's determined to go back to Judea, into the lion's den, as it were, he says this in verse 11, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. The disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. That means the fever is broken. He's doing all right. There's no need to go back and get killed. Verse 13, Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Wait for it. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe but let us go to him. Are we, are we seeing here the, the big picture, brothers and sisters? This is going to be a faith-engendering, a faith-producing resurrection to the glory of God. If Jesus had been present when Lazarus fell ill, he would have healed him on the spot, I'm sure. But then the greatest of all Jesus' miracles would not have occurred. And this glory being brought to God the Father through the glorification of God the Son, never would have taken place. And the same thing holds true if Jesus had healed Lazarus from a distance. He says, for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. Believe what? We've heard this every week, I think I've preached this, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. But there's something strange going on here. If Jesus had left Galilee as soon as the information arrived that Lazarus was sick, Lazarus still would have been dead when Jesus arrived four days later. Instead, Jesus delays two days, which means Lazarus has been dead now for four days instead of dead for only two days, 
but dead is dead. He's still just as dead. So why delay? That's an excellent question. Jews don't embalm most people. They were buried the same day. Uh, But there was also a superstition at the time. There are Jewish sources from the first century that say that the soul hovers over the body for three days. But once the soul sees that decomposition has set in, then the soul departs. Uh, Death is then judged to be absolutely irreversible. Now, Jesus doesn't believe that superstition, of course, but many, many Jews did. So, if Lazarus had been dead for two days, or if he'd been dead for three days, and then Jesus shows up in the scene, he performs his greatest miracle, it would have been tainted with skepticism. Because maybe the spirit hadn't really left. Point number one, Lazarus is sick, yet Jesus delays in order that God may be glorified. Now, I want us to take this first point, Christian, and I want you to apply it to your own life. I want, uh, I, I pray we all get this under our belt now, sooner rather than later. As your pastor, I want this to be a functioning part of our worldview as a, as a local church. Search the scriptures. And you will see that there is a certain kind, there's a certain kind of Christian maturity that can be attained only through suffering. And God loves you enough that he will sovereignly bring suffering your way. He will grant you suffering, Christian, that he might be glorified in your life. If if that concept scandalizes you, you need to correct your thinking with the word of God. So if you haven't experienced suffering already, uh, prepare yourself for that blessing. I'm not being facetious as I say that. It's coming. Because the Bible is very clear that our maximal comfort in this fallen world is low, low, low on God's list of priorities for us. It's, it's front and center for me. Actually, I'm, I'm inclined to think something strange is happening when I do have suffering in my life. Don't you? you know, I, I'm prone to forget, and, and Satan is delighted when I forget. I'm prone to forget the encouraging teaching of Scripture from Hebrews 12, 5 to 6, that God lovingly disciplines his children. But that just goes to show what I think is important in this life. It goes to show, it really, it goes to showcase my remaining corruption because I don't want to think about that. I, I'm prone to forget all kinds of scripture on this topic. I'm prone to forget that the Lord disciplines and chastens everyone he accepts as his child. Hebrews 12, everyone. I'm prone to forget that suffering produces in me perseverance. And then perseverance, character, and character, hope. The Apostle Paul writes that in Romans 5. I am prone to forget James 1, that I should consider it pure joy whenever I face trials of many kinds, because I know that the testing of my faith produces perseverance. And I need to let perseverance finish its work so that I may be mature and complete, fitted for heaven, not lacking anything. I don't want to, I don't want to think about that. I'm prone to forget to to pray biblically to God in the midst of trial, to pray for wisdom, to accept these things, to believe them, 
for grace to preach truth to my heart and to endure and submit to the Lord's discipline. That, 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 there's a big part of me that does not want to learn the patience of unanswered prayer. I don't want to be a faithful disciple and pick up my cross daily following Jesus in death, submitting to God's sovereign, God-glorifying design for my life. Because that will involve, it must involve, the abandonment of self-interest. Right? Picking up my cross, following Jesus to die, means putting aside my own, my own timeline, my own precious timeline, and trusting God, desiring that he be glorified even, even in the face of long delay. Or even never getting what I want. Never. I so desperately need God's grace because I'm like a bratty three-year-old living in the immediate. Like a three-year-old living in the present. Give it to me now, Lord. I need it now, God. Deliver me now. Provide for me now, now. Oftentimes, brothers and sisters, God glorifies himself through delay, through long delay. Our timeline is not a concern for God. Our timeline is self-focused. It doesn't have God's glory, first and foremost at heart, does it? But his timeline always does. His glory is front and center. In fact, God's preeminent concern in every situation, in every circumstance, every single last one, is his own glory. And to quote John Piper, God will be most glorified in our life, Christian, as we learn to find our satisfaction in him, our joy in him, our contentment in him, trusting in him. Because God is glorified by long delay, just as he is glorified when there's instantaneous action. His crown shines no less brightly in the former scenario compared to the latter. God is glorified in sickness, just as he is in healing. God is glorified in death, just as he is in resurrection. God knows best. Verse 16. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And now our second point. In Jesus' interaction with grieving Martha, he turns her attention to himself. I am the resurrection and the life. Verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And that's not a rebuke. That's, you know, it's, it's a wail of grief. You know, but we can see it's grief mixed with faith, isn't it? Verse 22. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. 
which doesn't mean that she expects Jesus to raise her brother from death. Uh, We know that because she warns Jesus that there's going to be a a really bad odor if they roll away the stone. So she's not expecting resurrection. Jesus said to her in verse 23, your brother will rise again. And, And Don Carson calls verse 23 a masterpiece of planned ambiguity. I I like that. A masterpiece of planned ambiguity. Sure, on the last day, Lazarus will be restored to bodily life, and Martha believes that. But at another level, Jesus is promising a more immediate resurrection for Lazarus, isn't he? Your brother will rise again. And Martha responds, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And then Jesus says something astonishing it's the fifth of seven i am sayings in john's gospel jesus said to her i am the resurrection and the life the one who believes in me will live even though they die do you see what our lord has done jesus is comforting Martha's grief by turning her attention to himself. That's remarkable. Even in her great grief, Jesus wants Martha to understand theologically that there is neither resurrection nor eternal life apart from him. Even in her great grief, she needs to understand that. A while back, I was talking with a non-practicing Muslim who had emigrated from Iran, and he told me all the major religions of the world, all the religious teachers of the world, were basically the same. They all taught the same thing. There, there is a God, yes, and if you're a good person, if you give money to the poor, like he gave money to a homeless person outside his building, $20 every single day, then you will go to heaven. But... How can we we read a text like this, yet say all religions and all religious teachers are the same? I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. What other religious figure in all of history has ever said such a thing and then rose from the grave to prove it? What other religious figure in history would have the audacity to tell a person who is grieving the death of a loved one to find their hope in him alone? Even in her great grief, Jesus wants Martha to understand theologically that there is neither resurrection nor eternal life outside of him. Jesus is saying to Martha, he's saying this to all of us, New City, I am the resurrection. When you die, you will come back from the dead in a resurrection body on the last day if you believe in me. But apart from me, there is no resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. That is, whoever believes in me will gain eternal life right now. Even if you die, you will live. Because through faith in me, you have eternal life. But there is no eternal life outside of me. 
so exclusively am I the provider of resurrection and eternal life that apart from me, there is no resurrection, there is no eternal life. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Jesus asked Martha. Friend, do you believe this? There are really only two choices here. Jesus is either an insane blasphemer whose religious claims should just be completely dismissed, or he truly is the resurrection and the life. There's no third alternative. What are you thinking as you're sitting there in your seat right now? Now, Martha's a good Jew. She already believes in the final resurrection. But we can see that Jesus' concern is to divert Martha's focus away from an abstract belief in what takes place on the last day to a personalized belief in him who alone can provide it. Verse 27, yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. <clears throat> Which is a, that's a remarkable confession. I'm, I'm sure Martha doesn't understand everything Jesus has just said. Uh, much of this will have to wait until after the cross and after Jesus' own resurrection. But as, as far as she can, she accepts it. And Leon Morris explains it like this. Martha holds that the one who is the resurrection and the life must be such by virtue of the fact that he is God's promised Messiah. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And now, now the resurrection of her brother Lazarus becomes a sort of acted out parable of what Jesus the Messiah will do, what will happen on the final day. So this is kind of a foretaste of things. Point number three. In Jesus' interaction with Mary, he confronts death and his sovereignty over it with tears and outrage. Verse 28. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. So Martha goes back to the house and tells Mary that Jesus is there and is asking for her. Uh, Mary gets up to see Jesus, but this time the mourners see her leave and they come with her. I, I'm borrowing this, this next observation from somebody else, but in, in Canadian culture, uh, public mourning is a pretty low-key affair, isn't it? I mean, public mourning. Uh, if, if you're a born and bred Canadian and, and a loved one dies, uh, it's thought that you're, you're letting down the side too much. If, you're, if you cry too much at the funeral, um, if you make too, too big of a display of your, of your grief at the funeral, uh, we, we might, a Canadian might be absolutely gutted, absolutely completely devastated. But we, we do our best to keep it all together, don't we? we? We don't typically throw ourselves under the coffin, right, and start wailing out our grief. But other cultures, they let it all hang out. It's a sign of respect. It's a way of saying, this person is worth making some noise over. Their death is an absolute travesty. Even the poorest families in first century Palestine were expected to hire two flute players to play dirges and one professional, a professional wailing woman. So she actually, she would keep up the emotion 
as a sign of respect for the dead. It must have been a, what a terrible job that would be. <laughs> I can't imagine doing that every day. But uh, it's a sign of respect for the dead. You're keeping up the emotion. You're all wailing out your grief. But Mary and Martha are rich, right? They have a whole fleet of wailing women, women and a whole orchestra to play dirges. Verse 31, when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. Which doesn't mean she's going to go there and like daintily sniff into a hanky kind of thing. She's going out there to, to wail, to let it all hang out. And so, you know, the orchestra's there, the wailing women are all there too. So verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. As a culture, we don't talk much about death, do we? Not real death. I mean, it will refer to death as an abstract concept, but it's considered to be in very, very poor taste at a dinner party, say, to speak of the real, ugly, brutal realities of death. Uh, it's not polite to talk about the dehumanizing pain and the nasty smells, the fear, ravaged families, the pitiful lack of dignity. In the West today, death is a sanitized affair. It's kept undercover, out of sight. Uh, no one's elderly relatives die in the care of the family anymore. In the home, they die in hospitals, away from the family, before their bodies are whisked away to the undertaker. We don't want to think about death. And when we do think about it, our perception can be sinfully warped. Just like our perception of sex, marriage, career, family, every dimension of life. It's warped because we don't think of our own death in real terms. It's like being audited by the government. It's something that happens to other people until it happens to you. I wonder, New City, which of us will be the first to die? Which of our brothers and sisters here today will be the first to be with the Lord? That's not a perverse, morbid question. As Christians, we must escape this mindset that refuses to look at death and to plan for death, to live in light of death, and to expect death. One day, we're going to be standing around the members, a member's headstone together as a church family, and we're going to be praying the Bible and singing the Bible and reading the Bible and, and encouraging each other with the hope of the gospel. It's going, to be it's going to happen. Perhaps it will be someone's husband who dies. Perhaps it will be someone's wife who dies. Perhaps it'll be someone's child who dies. Perhaps it'll be you who dies. As Christians, we must bring our mortality out into the open. Ecclesiastes 7.2, our call to worship this morning, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. Why? For death is the destiny of every person. The living should take this to heart. Death, according to the dictionary, is the permanent termination 
of the biological functions that sustain a living organism. And that's true, medically speaking, but it's only a very small part of the overall biblical picture, isn't it? I mean, that actually hides a whole lot more than it reveals because that medical definition of death isn't connected with the reality of a created order in rebellion against God under the frustration of the curse. What's lacking there is Genesis 3. What's lacking in in that dictionary definition is the historical plot line of the Bible, beginning with Genesis 1 and 2, and then the fall in Genesis 3, all the way through the book of Revelation, and the new heavens and new earth, and the reality of an eternal hell. Because without that framework, that medical definition of death hides much more than it reveals, and it offers no hope, none. Jesus says to Martha outside her brother's tomb, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. One day, if the Lord should grant us years, we're going to find ourselves in a hospital. And the doctor will be telling us that the cancer has metastasized and the heart disease is too far progressed and an operation is impossible. And then we'll be able to perceive like never before the death sentence we've been living under all of our lives. And unless the Lord returns in our lifetimes, all of us, every single one of us, will face that situation as impossible as it seems right now. And if we're Christians, and because our view of reality is based on what God has revealed in the Bible, we'll know when we're dying that what we're experiencing isn't because the universe suddenly went off the rails isn't because God fell asleep at the switch. We die because we're sinners. We're responsible participants in our own death. Death isn't something that just happens to a person. It's nothing as clinical as the biological functions that sustain a living organism have been permanently terminated. We die because our sinful transgression has attracted God's just wrath. And our death is God's personal and judicial reaction to the transgression in which we have responsibly, culpably, guiltily indulged, all of us. And all that, beloved, is needed to understand what happens next in this story. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping... He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And a number of commentators say that that's a bad translation. Uh, Don Carson, following Beasley Murray, he notes that every German Bible translation he could find gets that translation right, and every English translation gets it wrong. Verse 33 reads, When Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was outraged. Not deeply moved, outraged. 
Jesus is profoundly troubled, so much that he weeps. Not because he's powerless, because he came too late. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus to life in 30 seconds. No, Jesus is deeply outraged as he confronts the death and the mourning and the misery because he understands much more than we do that death is God's sentence on sin. He's outraged because of death itself. This is not the way it was in the Garden of Eden. And he looks at the death and the war, rape, the famine, the genocide, the pain, the sin, the rebellion, the idolatry, the cosmic anarchy that's behind all of this. And he is outraged as only the holy God can be. The holy God is outraged by sin and death. And the only way to set things right is for him to go to Golgotha in obedience to his father. Jesus must go to the cross and die. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? That last point is true, but Jesus' delay was intentional. And now Jesus is going to do something that will lay a firm foundation for their faith in him. He's going to blow their puny horizons out of the water, and his father will be glorified. Verse 38, Jesus once more, deeply moved, outraged, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man. John keeps calling Lazarus the dead man. By this time, there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. (coughs) Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. They take away the stone, and then Jesus prays. But only after everyone smells the stench of Lazarus' decaying flesh. That's deliberate. And with the smell of putrefaction in their nostrils, verse 52, Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. And notice, brothers and sisters, that this is a prayer of thanks. Jesus has already asked for Lazarus' life, so all he must do now is thank God for the answer. And this prayer is also, it also demonstrates the truth that we read back in John 5, 19 and following. Jesus initiates nothing on his own, but is totally dependent on and obedient to his Father's will. The Son May ask, the Father grants. And what's Jesus' desire? That through this miracle, the greatest of all Jesus' miracles, people may believe Jesus was sent by God. That is how God is glorified through his Son. Verse 43. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Do you remember how I said a while back that 
the resurrection of Lazarus is sort of an, an acted out parable of what the Messiah will do, what will happen on the final day. Turn quickly to John chapter 5, verse 25. We've looked at this before, but now we have the big context, I think. John 5, 25. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is a son of man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. You see, a time is coming, that hour God the Father has determined, when all, all who are in their graves will hear his voice, they will hear Jesus' voice, and come out. There will be no exceptions. The same one who cried, Lazarus, come out, he will cry again, and all the graves will open up, come forth Socrates, right? And Socrates will have a resurrection body. Come forth, Hitler. And Hitler will have a resurrection body. Come forth, Jill. Come forth, Esther. Come forth, Paul. Come forth, Susan. And then we all will be standing before Jesus Christ. And we will see his wounds. There there are still going to be visible wounds. Wounds opened on Calvary's hill for the salvation of sinners. And then Jesus, the eternal son, he will open his glorified human mouth and pronounce judgment upon each of us. Either eternal life, come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Well done, good and faithful servant. Or eternal condemnation. Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him, right? To the glory of the Father. But not everyone. Verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They tattletailed. Jesus raises a corpse to life but they'd rather get political brownie points than face up to the revelation of God. Which isn't surprising. Um, If we love our sin enough, we will happily, happily twist God's revelation to suit our own sinful desires just like they did. We'll do anything rather than face the truth of God. And so we'll persist in refusing to come into the light, as we learned a few weeks ago. In Jesus' parable... What did Abraham say to the rich man when the rich man begged him to send another man named Lazarus back to the realm of the living to warn his brothers? Do you recall? If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. John 11, 47. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called out 
called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. If people start thinking that Jesus is the Messiah, then the Romans aren't just going to stand idly by. The Romans aren't stupid. They know that the political, the political hopes that Jews invest in the Messiah. And there's only one king, Caesar. If Jesus gains a political following, the Sanhedrin will lose its power, the temple will be crushed, and their money and privilege will be taken away. These religious religious leaders, these shepherds of Israel, aren't concerned. They're not concerned with what's right or what's just or with the sign, the amazing sign that Jesus has just performed. They're concerned with what's expedient. What will keep our place in society? Never mind God glorifying himself through the glorification of his son, Jesus. What will keep our place in society? And so Jesus has to die. They kill him. And the nation perishes. In four short decades, in 70 AD, the Romans level Jerusalem. And 60 years after that, there's another revolt, and the city is crushed again, and the Jews are forbidden by the Romans to live there ever again upon pain of death. Verse 49, then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied. That is, God is working through him so that he was speaking better than he knew. As high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation certainly not uh, in the sense that Caiaphas intended. He did die, but not in the same way, obviously. Caiaphas is thinking, put this fellow to death, and the nation will be saved. It's either the nation or it's Jesus. What we need here is a substitutionary death. He was giving his hardened, calloused opinion, but he spoke better than he knew. As high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. One shepherd, one flock. Do you see? Chapter 10, chapter 11, they're linked together. So from that day on, they plotted, they resolved to take his life. The advice of the high priest is accepted. The decision has now been made. They just have to look for a a, a politically an expedient time to do this. In short, Jesus is not to be arrested in order to be tried. He is to be tried because he has already been found guilty. Jesus' death notice was written on this day. And what's precipitated this under God's sovereign providence? What serves as the catalyst for sending Jesus to the cross to die for the scattered children of God, to bring them together, to make them one? is the raising of Lazarus to life. That's what did it. Which is why John records in chapter 12, verse 10, so the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Let me close with a, a personal story. Uh, do you know what a, what a Jewish ossuary is? It's a burial box. It's about, about that big. Uh, during the time of Jesus, Jewish 
burial customs included primary burials and burial caves where, where the meat rotted off the bones, followed by a secondary burial of the defleshed bones. And you put those bones in this box, in this ossuary, a stone or wooden chest about, you know, again, it's about that big, <clears throat> placed in, in smaller niches of the burial caves. In 2002, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls exhibit came through Canada. I was in Montreal, and I saw it. And part of the exhibit was the ossuary of Caiaphas, the high priest. One of the main conspirators in Jesus' death. Seeing that 2,000-year-old box was a profound experience. Jesus, my Lord was raised in an eternal resurrection body three days after Caiaphas killed him. Jesus reigns. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him by his father. But Caiaphas is in hell. His dead bones are nothing but dust in a stone box I paid 20 bucks to see behind glass. That man played his part in God's eternal design. The Son of Man must die. And Judas played his part. Pontius Pilate played his part. You play your part, and I play mine. God is sovereign. Human beings are responsible. Brothers and sisters, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name, eternal life. Amen. Let's pray.